So Liz Goodwin, Tyler Pager, right now it is just after 10 a.m. on Wednesday. We are here in the studio. And to be clear, there are a lot of critical races that have not yet been called. But from what you guys have seen so far, what is your one big reaction to what we've seen play out in these election results? I would say no red wave, which is also everyone's big reaction. Um, I think it's just surprising how much, especially on the House side, a lot of these vulnerable Democrats held on. Um, And, you know, there's even some kind of surprise results on safer Republican seats like Lauren Boebert, who's kind of fighting for her life right now. It just was not what the narrative was, where Democrats were freaking out, Republicans were feeling amazing, especially on the House side. And I would echo that and just broaden it out a little bit. I mean, even some of these governors in states that uh, are, are, are conservative, places like Kansas that has re-elected a Democratic governor in Michigan, Minnesota, West, Wisconsin, all places that, you know, Democrats felt good but not great about their chances of, of re-electing governors. I think we saw that sort of across the board that Democrats did quite well there. Um, and I think digging down a little bit into what that means is the policy issues that we thought and strategists thought were going to be the most animating were maybe not the most animating for voters. Everyone was talking about the economy as the dominant issue for voters. And it seems like that was an important one, but also abortion and and issues of democracy were salient for voters too. Um, And I think that that tells us a lot about where the uh, American mindset is as we head um, out of these midterm elections. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 9th. Today, we are talking about the red wave that wasn't. A Congress hanging in the balance and what all of this can tell us about the direction of the country. I'm joined in the studio by Liz Goodwin, who covers Congress, and Tyler Pager, who covers the White House. Heading into Election Day, it was predicted that Republicans would regain control of the House. Liz, does it look like that is going to happen? It does. It's not a sure thing, which is kind of shocking to say. But uh, most models show them winning, you know, at least the only five seats that they needed to flip in order to gain the majority. Um, Some Republicans are talking about maybe we'll have 225. Um, 218 is the majority. So that Mm. is tight. That is real tight. But that's a good thing for Republicans. I mean, I, I'm surprised that there's not more, like, cheering and excitement about the fact that it looks like the House is going to flip red. True. I mean, I think your average American, if they wake up to a headline tomorrow or they see, you know, on their phone, uh, House turns Republican, Republicans take back House, right? That's kind of like the takeaway for a lot of regular people. I think Us in Washington, we just know that with Kevin McCarthy as the potential next House speaker and just how raucous his caucus can be, um, great rhyme, um, (laughs) that like having that slim of a majority is just such a different reality for what's going to happen here than if he had, if he was in the 230s. I mean, he was predicting winning 60 seats at some point. So I see. So that's a difference here for what a Republican held House will look like when you have that narrow margin because that means that 
Republicans aren't necessarily all going to vote together on everything or Kevin McCarthy is going to have a more difficult time of getting his uh, priorities done. Exactly. And even last night you had some more uh, right wing members uh, like Representative Massey sort of saying, you know, look at what Joe Manchin can do in the Senate. He's only one guy. Uh, (laughs) So they're kind of already looking forward to being able to put their priorities ahead of McCarthy's. Feeling empowered. Yes. And then what about the Senate? Where are we on that? I think it's going to be a while before we really know exactly uh, how that turns out. Uh, I think Democrats are excited. They've at least picked up one seat in Pennsylvania where there was an open seat uh, after retirement. So John Fetterman has won that race against Dr. Oz. Um, And then we're at this moment waiting for three more seats uh, to be decided, that being Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. And it looks like Georgia we may not know for a few weeks as as it looks likely to head to a runoff. Um, Democrats, if they win Nevada and Arizona in the next few days, um, it's likely to take some time to count all those votes. Democrats will control the Senate. Um, it might be 50-50, and Joe Manchin will be very powerful uh, for another two years. Um, but if they're able to also win Georgia, that gives them uh, 51 seats, uh, and that's a huge win for Democrats. And, and as we discussed, a cycle that was expected to be exceedingly difficult for them. Let's talk a little bit more about Pennsylvania and the Fetterman-Oz race. That was such a closely watched campaign, and I would love to hear a little bit more from you about why you think it went to Fetterman in the end and, and what is so surprising about this outcome. Yeah, I think the fact that Fetterman pulled it out despite all of the questions that Republicans were raising about his stroke, uh, the relentless ads about crime, they were contrasting him with Josh Shapiro, the now the next governor, saying he was, you know, easy, he was uh, tough on crime and Fetterman wasn't. It was just, he was, I mean, there was so much spending. It was the race that had the most spending of any Senate race this cycle. Um, And the fact that he was able to pull it out, I really think is just a commentary on Oz. Um, And I think, Mm. you know, Mitch McConnell would heartily agree. He did not want Oz to win that primary. His uh, super PAC blew a cannon-sized hole in Oz during the primary, trying to prop up his pick, Mm. McCormick, who given this margin, I think there's going to be a lot of what-ifs that McCormick could have won, could have defeated Fetterman. Well, say more on that, on why this was Oz's race to lose. And also we should talk about Oprah, because Oprah (laughs) at the last second endorsed Fetterman. And I do wonder how much that had an influence on this. The conditions were in in place for Republicans to have a, a good night, right? History shows us that the party that has the White House often does not do well in the midterms. And this was a seat held by a Republican who's retiring. Um, it, you know, polls showed it, it to be a tight race. Um, but this is a larger conversation about the role that Trump played in these midterm elections and the role particularly that he played in primaries, getting involved in boosting candidates that he liked over the objections of some of the Republican leaders who wanted different candidates that they thought they would do better. So Dr. Oz, he appealed to Trump because of his TV background. Our, you know, our colleagues reported that Melania Trump was was a fan of Dr. Oz. And so Trump really got behind him and helped elevate him in the primary. Republicans in Washington, like Senator Mitch McConnell, did not think he was the strongest candidate. And Fetterman really took advantage of his vulnerabilities, one of them being that he didn't live in Pennsylvania before moving there for this race. And and that's something that Fetterman really made a vulnerability for Oz. 20 years ago, I came to Braddock to start a GED program. And I've spent these last two decades fighting for the forgotten communities. Because no community deserves to be left behind. No one deserves to be abandoned. And every place matters. 
The other thing that I would point out here is the the governor's race. So Josh Shapiro, the Democratic candidate, won uh, won the election uh, much easier than than Fetterman did in the Senate race, and that's because he also ran against a candidate that was propped up by Trump, Doug Mastriano, who was at the January sixth riot on Capitol Hill, and someone that again Republicans did not want to be their nominee for governor, and I think that boosted Fetterman as well. As Shapiro ran much ahead of of Mastriano in the governor's race, that helped Democrats down the ballot. And so again, I think as we look around the country, there's going to be a lot of conversations today about Trump's role in these primaries, elevating candidates that he liked, but that were not appealing to a broad section of the electorate. That is fascinating. And also, it sounds like you guys are saying that this is not Oprah's, <laughs> Oprah's win. <laughs> It, it was funny I, as, you know, Oprah came in at the last moment and, and uh, uh, boosted, you know, endorsed uh, Fetterman. Oz, I think, put out a statement saying something along the lines of, you know, I always have good things to say about Oprah. But Oprah was, uh, you know, in the last few days endorsing candidates around the country. Um, but obviously there's that deeper connection there uh, with, with Dr. Oz. So, Tyler, earlier on, you talked about the issues that were motivating voters here. Um, we spoke so much in advance of this election about the economy and how inflation was affecting regular Americans. And that is what they would be voting about, about, you know, their their pockets and what's happening when they go to the grocery store and try to buy milk or gas or whatever. Um, but as you say, it seems like abortion was, in fact, a really motivating issue for a lot of Democrat voters. Um, and, and I'm wondering how you're seeing this more largely as a referendum on President Biden? And what are the takeaways of, of how people seem to be feeling about the government and about the president right now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think we'll start to get more as we see more exit polling and, and do more interviews with voters on the ground. But one of the things that's striking is polling still shows that President Biden largely remains unpopular as an individual. That, you know, even in some of these early exit polls that we've seen, voters did not strongly approve or even mildly approve uh, overwhelmingly of the job that President Biden's doing. But what when you talk to Democrats, when you talk to White House officials, what they'll point out is that, yes, President Biden's overall approval rating may not be where they want it to be, but the policies he's pursued are popular. And so I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in these election results, you know, over the past 24 hours, is that voters turned out in support of the Democratic agenda, even if they were not fully backing every decision President Biden has made. And I think that's where we see some of these successes on on issues like abortion, where in states that had referendums on abortion as an issue, whether or not it should be illegal, uh, there should be more restrictions, Democrats are celebrating their victories in pushing back against efforts to either limit abortion access or celebrating uh, their achievements in expanding abortion access in states like California. And so I think that is a real victory for Democrats who argued that this would be an animating issue for their voters and that as Republicans seized on the overturning of Roe v. Wade to try to push more restrictive uh, rights for, for abortion, Democrats were able to push back and excite and animate their voters to turn out and, and support them. Liz, what, what do you think about that? What is the message that you think voters have been sending? I think one big message is against more extreme candidates. I think this is a a lot of the people who lost have kind of staked out uh, farther right positions. And so that's a message that Republicans 
even today are starting to grapple with. A lot of it is blaming Trump, who um, did kind of interfere in some of these primaries. People are pointing to the people who won, like DeSantis, Kemp, governors who, you know, they might have culture war issues going on in the background, but they're doing stuff and they're governing and they're they're not leading with, uh, you know, January 6th or mm-hmm. uh, or abortion even, you know, and I think I think that's something that there is, still has to play out within the party. Yeah. And to jump off that, I think one of the things that some of our colleagues here at The Post have been closely tracking are these candidates, the big lie candidates, the candidates that have repeatedly said the 2020 election was stolen. That is obviously one of the most important issues to former President Donald Trump that weighed heavily in how he endorsed candidates. And we saw Republican candidates squirm around how to address that issue. And we're seeing in in a lot of these states, particularly the positions that oversee elections, secretary of states, those Republicans have lost or are losing. Some of those races have not yet been called. But I think that's another huge victory for Democrats who have repeatedly said that this issue of election integrity, democracy, defending the peaceful transfer of power are issues that voters care about. You know, Republicans said they tried to downplay those issues, elevate this sort of big lie. But it seems like Democrats are are winning on that issue overnight. I think there's also an argument that some of the Republican message was sort of backward looking. There was a lot of focus on pandemic shutdowns. There was a lot of focus on January 6, 2020. I mean, that's in the past now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's also a little bit of a referendum on their messaging, even though there was a lot of criticism of Democratic messaging. Interesting. Well, you both mentioned this issue of the quality of the candidates as well. Um, And I think Dr. Oz is a good example of that. But that also goes the other way, right? I mean, you talked about Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, the fact that he won big on Tuesday night. And he was up against a candidate, uh, a Democrat, Charlie Crist, who I think a lot of people thought was pretty mediocre. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about that, about this issue of just lacking in quality candidates, both for Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, I mean, this is a debate that's played out a little bit more on the Republican side because the Senate map in particular, uh, given what happened in the primaries, there were a lot of subpar candidates that did win their primaries. So Blake Masters in Arizona, for example, we don't know yet if he's going to win or not, but that's a candidate that, you know, has never run for office, really struggled to raise money, had some extreme statements on abortion and other things that it just it didn't need to be that way, basically. And mm-hmm. I think Republicans are thinking, what if Governor Ducey had run that race? You know, what would be happening, especially since it looks like it's going to be very close there? The same thing could be said in New Hampshire. You know, they weren't able to recruit Sununu, who just blew it out and won governor, huge margins there. He didn't want to run for Senate. And so then you have Don Boldick losing by double digits, another kind of first-time candidate with some extreme statements in his in his past. So I think it was definitely more notable on the Republican side, especially in the Senate. But there are some people I think Democrats might have questions about. For example, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, he won very easily that primary, but he did have a lot of statements that they just played on repeat in Wisconsin. Um, about crime, about other issues where he he seemed they painted him as too extreme for the state. Mm-hmm. They painted him as too left. Um, and then, you know, there were ov- obviously some racial undertones to a, a lot of those ads. But yeah. I think maybe people are having what ifs there. And especially because Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, won re-election. I think the idea of split ticket voting is 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 for another conversation. But 
the fact that, you know, the Democrat could win re-election in the governor's race, but, you know, is on pace to lose in the Senate race is going to you know, prompt a lot of Democrats, again, to have those questions about candidate quality. But I, I totally agree with Liz. The issue of candidate quality seems to be much more of a Republican issue this cycle, in part because a lot of the Democratic candidates were incumbents. They were running for re-election, and so they had more established brands, whereas Republicans were putting up a lot of these candidates that were first-time candidates. The one exception being J.D. Vance, who won in Ohio. There were a lot of questions about whether or not he was the right candidate uh, for that race. Uh, Ohio is more of a uh, red state, uh, a safer Republican territory. And, and Tim Ryan, the Democratic member of Congress, ran a really um, tough race uh, against Vance, ultimately losing. But that's really the one area where we've seen a first-time untested candidate mm-hmm. uh, win, win, win one of those races. And this question about whether this guy who used to be a liberal darling after Hillbilly Elegy, whether he could, you know, Get, get voters to essentially buy that he is like a tried-and-true, red-blooded red Republican. Um, and it seems that they did. And someone who criticized Trump in the past mm-hmm. um, was able mm-hmm. to overcome that. Yeah, I mean, Ryan essentially painted him as a San Francisco elite, and he was the real Ohioan, uh, but it didn't work in the end. Let's talk a little bit more about Florida, too, because we mentioned DeSantis. Um, also, Senator Marco Rubio won his reelection, Congressman Matt Gaetz. Um, and I think there's been a lot of talk about, you know, is is Florida a toss-up state anymore or is it just a solidly Republican state? Um, and, and what are our takeaways from, from what you saw last night? I think Democrats over the past few years have come to realize that they are not competitive in Florida anymore. Um, I think— That has been buffeted by their successes in Arizona and Georgia, and so there's a lot more investment there. But I would not be surprised if in 2024 the Democratic nominee, whoever that may be, does not spend a lot of money or time in Florida at all. I mean, Ron DeSantis easily won re-election. Marco Rubio easily won re-election. And and this is a state where in previous elections, all eyes, all attention would be on Florida. But the state has just trended so far away from the Democratic Party that I think a lot of people don't see it as worthwhile to spend the time or money. It's also a really big and a really expensive state. And so as we see Democrats continue to lose these elections in recent years, there's going to be a lot in the party that say, why are we spending time and money in a place where we can't even be competitive? Do we feel like at this point it is safe to say that Ron DeSantis is going to run for president, considering how well he did? I don't think there's any safe assumptions to be made about this Republican primary. Um, After what we saw last night and some of the predictions that were made about what it would look like for Republicans and how it actually turned out, I think— he is probably feeling a lot uh, better about uh, his political future after he won last night. And Trump suffered a lot of defeats. The first comments Trump made on Truth Social last night were attacking Republican Senate candidates who lost, like Joe O'Day in Colorado, for not adopting his views on on the 2020 election. So I, I think it looks like Ron DeSantis is really preparing for a bid. Um, and, and Trump definitely feels threatened by his you know, recent comments about Ron DeSanctimonious, as he's started calling him. <laughs> um, but but I, I do think Trump is a very formidable competitor. The Republican, the Republican base is still solidly behind him. That's what polls show. Um, but uh, last night could have changed things. I'm a little skeptical of how much they changed things. Trump has dominated the Republican Party for the last six, seven years. Uh, and I don't think one night completely changes that. But but I do think Trump was weakened last night after the performances of his uh, handpicked candidates. 
I agree with Tyler. I think, you know, after 2020, that would have been a moment to say, wow, you know, Trump lost the White House, then two Georgia Senate seats flipped after he told people not to vote, that their vote wouldn't count. Mm. And, you know, there's he's still as strong as ever with the base, at least according to polling. So it's it's just I think you get a little bit skeptical of this, you know, they're going to abandon Trump narrative at some point. Uh, and so it kind of remains to be seen. But I do think DeSantis, you know, looks great after last night. And a lot of Republicans are kind of pumping him up and want him to run really badly, especially more establishment Republicans here in Washington. Uh, so we'll see. We faced attacks. We took the hits. We weathered the storms. But we stood our ground. We did not back down. We had the conviction to guide us, and we had the courage to lead. We made promises. We made promises to the people of Florida, and we have delivered on those promises. Let's talk a little bit about Georgia. Um, It seems like we are, in fact, headed to a runoff um, for the Senate seat between Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock. Um, But also the governor's seat, the fact that Brian Kemp won, as you say, pretty easily. Stacey Abrams is such a, like, beloved Democratic, like, icon. I think it was really surprising to people to see, frankly, how poorly she did um, in this race. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why. Yeah, I mean, that's another example of the vote splitting that we saw last night where Kemp was just absolutely crushing it and Walker was really trailing him. He did not seem to benefit much from those coattails. I think Abrams, you know, she she did make some mistakes in this race. Um, you know, there was she uh, Republicans really seized on some comments she made kind of criticizing the state uh, where, you know, she was saying we can do better than this. But it kind of looked like she was just, you know— um, sort of unhappy to be in the state is what they were suggesting. And I think Kemp also, I mean, he really triangulated in some ways because he refused to um, help Trump try to steal the state. And so he kind of stood up to the president in that way. But then he also really emphasized how he never locked the state down. He was kind of more conservative than Trump when it came to COVID and, you know, not responding to COVID in the early days and opening the state up. So he he had a way of kind of protecting his conservative bona fides, but also not seeming extreme and attracting a lot of voters in the middle while holding the right flank. And I think that was a really formidable thing for Abrams to try to go up against. We took our campaign to voters who normally don't support Republicans because no matter where you live or what neighborhood you are from, hardworking Georgians want their families safe, their streets safe, and they want good paying jobs and a quality education for their children. Just looking forward a little bit as we think about this runoff Obviously, Warnock is used to uh, campaigning for a runoff, successfully did so in 2020. Um, And I think one of the interesting factors to look at is what happens with Herschel Walker over the next few weeks. He has Mm -hmm. obviously been a candidate that has been plagued by a lot of scandal, um, and revelations feel like they come every few days about something else he did. And and Um, specifically, you know, revelations about Herschel Walker paying for an abortion, two abortions, you're right, I'm forgetting the one, (laughs) Uh, even though he is so publicly— 
anti-abortion and— Having more kids than he uh, identified as having with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, as you said, the reason that is so striking to so many people is because of the way that he has talked about fatherhood and absent fathers and, and, and abortion and being so stridently against it. Um, and so we just don't know what else could come out. Um, but but I, there, there's room for more bombshells here in the next few weeks. Exactly. And also, I think Walker likely benefited from rank-and-file Republicans turning out for any election day. Kemp obviously cruised to re-election, and he benefited from the coattails. Maybe not as much as he could have, but it'll be interesting to see how many people stay at home for this runoff. If it is just Warnock v. Walker, and those are the only two people on the ballot, there are people that likely will say, I don't want to vote for either of them, so I'm just not going to go out, and that will likely hurt Walker. If you can hang in, hang in there a little bit longer. Just hang in there a little bit longer because something good, it takes a while for it to get better. And it's going to get better. So I wanted to thank I also think it's interesting to see what happens in the other states and whether or not we know control of the Senate. If Democrats win Nevada and Arizona, those Senate races, they will already have control of the Senate. The Georgia race won't impact that. And so that could also play into enthusiasm among voters. If Republicans already know it doesn't matter if they turn out, they already lost the Senate, that could be a boost to Warnock. Um, if it is, if the Senate is determinative, control of the Senate is determined by that race, that will, we will see so much money pour into that. And, and a lot mm. of people go down and, and try to campaign. And that could also, you know, benefit both sides. But I think these are interesting uh, things to look at as it becomes a just a 1v1 race. And there's no other sort of races on the ballot that could bring people out. We, we always knew that this race would be close. And so, here, that's where we are. So y'all just hang in there. I'm feeling good. I do. I feel good. After the break, we'll talk about how our election system is holding up under so much pressure and what yesterday's results tell us about how the presidential race in 2024 could take shape. We'll be right back. I want to talk a little bit about the actual election itself and voting, what we've seen around the country in terms of the challenges that people have had to vote, lawsuits that are attempting to throw out votes that were cast, um, or uh, accusations of the election being stolen. I mean, when you think of the, the, the scope of problems that came up after the 2020 election, how does this compare what we're seeing now? Much quieter, I would say. Yeah, way fewer lawsuits, way fewer cries of false cries of fraud. You had election deniers who have conceded, which I think is a good sign. I mean, mm. it shouldn't have to be a good sign, but just I mean, given— it feels a little remarkable, <laughs> Given where things were, it's like there's a sigh of relief when someone concedes, I think. And, um, you know, Don Baldick in New Hampshire conceded, and um, he had—he was a very strong election denier, but then he did kind of flip on it, so— uh, but still, I think you you didn't see it be a 2020 replay. You have Carrie Lake in Arizona kind of – I think she's – if she loses, she's going to go nuclear on that and she's already hinting at that. 
If we have to fight through the BS and the garbage, then we will fight through the BS and the garbage. But how do you get fair and free elections? You have to fight and win to make them fair and free. And we needed another stark reminder that we have incompetent people running the show in Arizona. Who is ready for a change? But there's a lot of candidates who um, did not go nuclear on that. And the one thing, the one caution I would add to that, I, I totally agree with what Liz said, but the two states where some of these issues were most salient after 2020 have not finished counting, Arizona and Nevada. And and that's where Carrie Lake is in Arizona, who has said throughout the campaign that when asked if she would concede if she lost, she said, well, I'm not losing. And she said last night that, you know, started to lay the groundwork for accusations that the election was stolen and rigged. Mm-hmm. And so I think while it has been very quiet and and good signs for democracy so far. I think we have to wait and see what happens in Arizona and Nevada, especially if Democrats win those races. Republicans, I think, will be eager to cry foul uh, with without much evidence to this point. Those are the places that I would keep an eye on. It's also important to note that it looks like a majority of the House Republican caucus will be election deniers in some shape or form. Wow. I mean, that's... It's hard to fathom, um, but what does that mean? I mean, what are the potential effects of that, the fact that we are seeing so many election deniers who have now been elected or reelected? I think it depends what would happen in 2024 when the House plays a role in certification of the presidential election results. If a Republican candidate loses in 2024, how many 2020 election deniers are willing to make that an issue again, try to gum up the works, try to get people mad again about it? And I also think it just reflects the main, you know, almost the mainstream of the Republican Party. Like this idea that the election was stolen, which there is no basis for and has been repeatedly disproven that that a majority or a significant portion of the House Republican caucus believes that and, and argues that just shows the transformation of the Republican Party over the past few years and how that is sort of like a baseline for being a Republican today is do you believe and do you support Trump's claims about the 2020 election? So we talked a little bit about what these election results might mean for the prospects that uh, that former President Trump is going to try to run for president again. But I wonder what this means for President Biden and how he is looking at 2024 and whether he will run for a re-election. I can tell you last night in the White House was a very celebratory mood. Uh, People are taking victory laps on Twitter, in my text messages, over email. They feel very vindicated about what happened last night. And as my colleague Michael Shearer and I reported, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden and a very small group of aides have been meeting since September to start to lay the groundwork for a potential re-election campaign. And that, I think, is only going to be turbocharged after last night. I think we started to see in the last few months some Democrats speak out and say they wanted to see new leadership of the party. Some members of Congress, Dean Phillips in Minnesota, for example, even going as far to say Joe Biden should not run again. I think there was some expectation that that sentiment would be broadened, and we'd hear that from more voices in the party after last night when people expected the Republicans to have a much better night than they did. Given that Democrats had a much better night than they did, I think 
we're less likely to hear that sentiment from other voices in the party. And that is only going to strengthen President Biden's argument for why he should run for re-election. The one interesting caveat to this whole conversation is that a lot of President Biden's thoughts on re-election hinged on former President Trump, that he beat him once and that he's the only one that's been able to do it. Hmm. And so he is best positioned to do so. Interesting. So like what happens in a world where Trump doesn't run in 2024? Does Biden, is he still able to make that case of I'm the best candidate if he's not kind of running against the one guy that he knows he can beat? And that's the question. I mean, it's not even just if Trump doesn't run, but Trump is very likely to run. But if someone like Ron DeSantis or another Republican is able to defeat him, what does that matchup look like for President Biden? And I think that's not something the White House or Democrats are grappling with right now. But as we head into a contested Republican primary, I think those questions are going to be raised. Right now, the White House Democrats are just celebrating the night that they had. And President Biden and his aides feel even more emboldened uh, that he is the best person to to lead the party moving forward. Yeah, I would agree. I think a lot of Democrats were facing questions in debates as they were, you know, trying to hold on to their seats. They're scared that there's going to be a red wave. Do you support Biden running again? That was kind of a hard question for a Democrat to get. And I think given the results, it it just doesn't feel like as much of a hard question anymore. But I also want to be clear here. I mean, I know so much of this is about the expectation that Democrats and Republicans had going into this and in what way expectations fell short or were exceeded. Um, But Republicans are getting back the House. The Senate is still up in the air. But but I'm wondering, like, what does that mean for the next two years? I mean, what will a world where Republicans have the House and President Biden as president, what will that look like? What will change um, in terms of, of, of... what's happening in our government. A lot of pain for the White House in a lot of ways. And I think that is a really important point to make. A lot of the conversations we're having is about narrative and expectations. But in reality, there is a changing of power that is likely to happen. And that has real impacts on the way that our government functions and the way that the White House is run. For example, the White House is going to have to face a lot of investigations from Republicans on a whole host of issues, from Afghanistan to COVID to Hunter Biden, the president's son, but also on, you know, issues of just how the country runs, government funding, debt ceiling, budgets, policy. That is not the the Democrats are not going to be able to run Washington the way that they have over the last two years if Kevin McCarthy is speaker, as we expect him to be. Republicans are going to have a lot of their own troubles kind of keeping everyone together. We saw Nancy Pelosi do a very masterful job in keeping a very narrow majority together to push the Democrats' priorities over. I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to have as much success in doing so, but it's going to be a really difficult two years for the White House trying to figure out what they can get done, what Republicans will work with them on. And also, the Senate is going to be, even if Democrats maintain control or gain one seat, that still doesn't give them that 60-proof, 60-vote filibuster that allows them to push through, um, you know, their own priorities. So it was a good night for Democrats. But, Martina, as you point out, this is not going to be as easy as it was the last two years for Democrats. And it wasn't even easy then. (laughs) What do you think? I think, I mean, that pretty much covered it. I think if um, if Democrats hold on to the Senate, it's obviously a big deal for the White House because they could still get their judicial confirmations through, which is something they're really worried about. But when it comes to any meaningful legislation, it's hard to see that. Um, House Republicans say it's now on Biden. The onus is on him to show if he can work with them. 
but they don't have a very clear agenda at the moment. House Republicans, they seem to want to try to repeal some stuff that Democrats passed in the last two years, which could set up a shutdown fight. It's hard to imagine Biden ever signing a bill repealing, you know, the IRA, a portion of the IRA. It's just you can't really see it. So depending on how um, oppositional they want to be, confrontational they want to be, it could mean shutdowns. It could mean um, you know, more government dysfunction. And I think that could, you know, make Democrats and Republicans look bad depending on how it plays out. So Liz, over the next couple of days, what are you going to be watching? I'm going to be watching Nevada and Arizona very closely since I'm paying a little more attention to the Senate side of things. And, um, you know, in Nevada, there's a lot of questions about how many votes are even out. There's no number. So it's really a guessing game there is in terms of what could happen with the Senate race. And in Arizona, uh, you know, historically, they can take a pretty long time to count as well. So that's that's what I'm watching. I'm going to be watching what this means for 2024 on both the Democratic and Republican side, whether there are more voices supportive of Joe Biden and, and him running for re-election, and what this means for Donald Trump. It was a rough night for his candidates. Does that embolden people to quickly announce bids for president? How does the former president react to this? How does that all shake out? I think really interesting storylines on both sides. Tyler and Liz, thank you so much for all of these insights. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. Liz Goodwin covers Congress for The Post. Tyler Pager covers the White House. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Charlotte Freeland. It was mixed by Sean Carter, and it was edited by Maggie Penman. For continuing coverage of the results from Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and other key states that could decide control of Congress, go to WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.